hear that? Does it make you feel a little nostalgic? Does it make you feel all warm and fuzzy inside? Well, I'm definitely feeling nostalgic and warm and fuzzy. For those that have never seen the 1970s television adaptation of the Little House series, what you just heard was part of the show's opening. Picture this. A rugged, rosy-cheeked family pulls up in a covered wagon on top of a grassy hill. The grossly attractive parents watch as their three adorable daughters run down said hill. Honestly, you might just want to look it up on YouTube. It's pretty freaking cute. Four decades before this video sequence hit televisions, Laura Ingalls Wilder published Little House on the Prairie, the third book in an autobiographical series about her life on the American frontier. This particular installment, released in 1935, recalls the months that the Ingalls family spent traveling to and settling on the Kansas prairie. There's wild animals, scary illness, and, especially unfortunately, a lot of prejudice against the native tribes who had been living on the land first. On a happier note, though, there's also a family committed to each other and to building a better life. Most notably, perhaps, the apparently heroic Pa Ingalls, who can do no wrong in the eyes of our narrator, Laura herself. For this walk down memory lane, both in terms of my personal reading history and our broader American history, I've called in Drew Gannon. Drew has worked in elementary education for six years, starting as a Teach for America Corps member and now as the Achievement Director for a public charter school network here in New York City. You'll hear more about that later. Brooklyn-based Drew loves history, travel, and binge-watching The West Wing, and she admits to bad habits including buying too many books and eating too many salty foods. Follow her at Drew Allison on Instagram to see the places she travels and, for the time being at least, the misadventures of wedding planning. Before we get started, be sure you've subscribed to the show and please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Trust me, it's what Pa would want. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Drew. Thank you so much for joining us on SSR. Of course. Thanks for having me. So this would normally be the point where I jump right in and we start talking about the book. But Drew, you have an interesting job as it relates to the content of this podcast. So I would really appreciate it if you could talk a little bit about what you do and how it might play into what we're talking about today, especially because we are discussing Little House on the Prairie, which is a work about American history. Yeah, absolutely. So... I work in education. Specifically, I work for a charter school network in Brooklyn, and I've been doing this for about seven years or working within that network. For four years, I was a third grade social studies teacher teaching about the United States and the regions of our country. And I was also a guided reading teacher, which is where you read chapter books with kids and develop their reading skills. And now I work as the achievement director for elementary social studies for that network. So my job is to create and then implement the curriculum that we teach about history and geography and economics for our kindergartners through fourth grade. I will admit that I hinted with Drew pretty strongly that I wanted her to pick (laughs) a book about history because I think to have the opportunity to talk to somebody who really is an expert in how we speak to children about historical content, like we really can't go wrong in this conversation. And I am always floored in these discussions I've been having about the podcast about the fact that like we can talk about these books as products of the time in which they were written as much as we want but the bottom line is that they're still on shelves today and so it's important to talk about yes 
them being products of their time, but also how they relate to kids in 2018 and and going forward. So I think you're the perfect person to talk Little House on the Prairie. Yeah, there's a lot to say. So why did you choose this one? I can't remember the other ones that I gave you, but they all had a historical bent. And why did Little House in particular appeal to you? Honestly, I picked it without thinking at all about my job. I picked it because I was obsessed with this book when I was little. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. One, I've always been a history nerd. Just give me anything. Those like history mysteries that we used to read that were a part of the American Girl series, things like that. I loved it. And so I picked this book first because of that, because I had fond memories of it as a kid. And also because, fun fact, Ma Ingalls was born apparently in my hometown in Wisconsin, and so there's literally a like extra credit assignment that I have in my old copy of the book that I found at home that has like a where do you live compared to where Ma Ingalls grew up? And what does it look like now compared to when you like when she lived here, which is hilarious. So those are the reasons why I picked it. And I really did not remember a lot about the book. And so it was really interesting to dive back in and <laughs> remind myself of some of the happier parts of the book and be reminded also of some of the the things that I really completely forgot from when I when I read it. I had a similar experience. I was obsessed with all things Laura Ingalls when I was a kid and I was thinking about this while I was preparing for this recording and I think for kids who were raised in the 90s there was something about this convergence of reading the Little House on the Prairie books as all kids have I'm sure since they were published in the 30s but also Mm -hmm. we had Oregon Trail and oh my god (laughs) right like I was there's this fascination with this kind of travel and this kind of like ruggedness and self-reliance it just was so ever-present in my elementary school days I I was addicted to it and I I wrote a lot of stories in my creative writing classes as a kid that were focused on traveling in a covered wagon and I just was fascinated by it and um, I was back at my parents' house recently and I found like I had all of these full color biographical coffee table books that people gave (laughs) me about Laura Ingalls Wilder and like I think I read them cover to cover. I got for Christmas one year the box set of the VHS tapes of the show which that show is so good. It is so good. And I think for me, and we'll get into this later, I'm sure, is that I am one of daughters. So I have a girl dad. Yeah. Pa Ingalls is like such the girl dad. Yes. And so I was always very drawn to this family because of that. Yeah, completely. Oregon Trail. I now as an educator really question why we spent so much time in school, literally in the school day playing Oregon Trail. But you're right. It had such an impact. Right. On us 90s kids. Teachers were paid to monitor us <laughs> play yeah. Oregon Trail, which I'm sure oh as an educator God. now you can't even wrap yeah. your head around. Oh, yeah, it's true. I want to make one brief disclaimer before we really get into the content of this book in terms of language because in Laura Ingalls' parlance, there's a lot of use of the word Indian in reference to Native Americans, which is obviously not the way that we talk about Native Americans today in 2018. So I just want to make it clear as we get ready to dive into this content, a lot of which is very sensitive and difficult to talk about, if the word Indian is used either as part of the excerpt that I'm reading from the book or if it's just in the context of this larger conversation from Laura Ingalls Wilder's perspective, it's definitely not a reflection of how Drew or I speak about this group of people in our lives. Do you want to say anything more about that, Drew? Yeah, I think that I think all of that is well said and that there is controversy in the education world and I think in the world at large today about what exactly is the appropriate term to use. Textbooks still use American Indian pretty frequently. Native American also has some issues that I'm not going to get into, but that people don't appreciate that either. I think that the ideal When we talk about groups of people who lived here before white people lived here is to refer to them with their tribal name as much as possible. That's really hard to do when we're talking about a book where there's such a generalization. A book Um, written from the perspective of a white little girl who doesn't know. So 
And so I think that understanding that when we talk about it, the language language that we use is being pulled from from this book. Yeah, I just wanted to clear that up ahead of time. Um, I think that's important to to clarify from the start. So that being said, and kind of prepping everyone listening right now for some potentially tricky conversations, Mm -hmm. let's get started. Drew, what was your first impression of this book on the reread (laughs) as you started to get back into it over these last couple of weeks? Fun fact, Drew read some of this book while sitting on a grand jury. Yes, which was really confusing for my other fellow jurists. Um, (laughs) They were like, I'm not fully understanding what you're doing, but you seem really into it with like the post-it notes and the annotations. So they just let me let me be. But I have to say I had kind of a night and day reaction. When I first dove into this book, I was like, yes, this is everything that I remember. And I love it so much. And I distinctly remembered parts of the book and some of the pictures that are included in there, which is just like makes it into even more of a historical fairy tale in some ways to see those pictures and have them back in my lap again. And so I really dove into it and I was like, yes, this is so fun. Like, this is great. Up until we got to the first reference to Indians. (laughs) And then I got to that part and I was like, oh boy, we're going to have some interesting conversations around this. And I will note, she gets into it really fast. Real fast. The first sort of media reference to Indians isn't for a few chapters, I don't think, but the word Indians is used on the first page of this book with reference to Indian country, which is in itself a whole plot line, this idea of the Ingalls family is moving into quote unquote Indian country, as we learned from Laura on the first page. So there's really no time in this book to adjust to the language. Like you're in it and you're already yeah. like, oh, here we are talking about Indians. Yeah. And I think like they start talking about Indian territory, which is a historical term. That's what it was called. And we still refer to it today. I think for me, it was a little bit later on. And I think it was Ma who first talked about Indians. Oh, no. You know what it was? It was when she talked about the papoose. Yeah. And Prab brought up this idea idea that, oh, like you're going to see a little Indian baby called a papoose. And Laura is fixated on the idea of a papoose. Like when they get to Kansas, when they like settle in, she's like, Paul, where's the papoose? And I spent a lot of the book being like, oh my God, oh my God. When she finally saw the papoose, it was worse than I I expected, (laughs) really. It was a bad moment in the book. Well, it was a big reaction. That's why it was like, it was an intense emotional expression from her that like, oh, I've, I've found the papoose. It would have been great if initially she'd seen this Indian baby and been like, oh, it's a, it's a baby. It's a human baby. And, you know, maybe I overhyped it in my head. But it really, to my memory at least, she was just as excited and mesmerized by this situation as she expected to be. And that was extremely uncomfortable. Well, the thing that got me, and like this is way at the end of the book. We're hopping all around, which is great. But Oh, I know where you're going. Spent, I can't wait. She spent all of the book talking about the little Indian baby, then finally, as the Indians are being removed from Indian territory, she sees the little baby and she wants it. Like it's a piece of property that she's going to claim. Like it's a doll, effectively. I was really hoping for that moment too in this book where Laura was like, oh, there are like little little babies like my baby Carrie, like my baby sister Carrie, who is just like me. That's really the message that you want this book to come out with. And unfortunately, it is just her hysterically crying because she can't keep this baby as her doll. It was a tough moment for me. And it was the moment, I think, where I I switched and shifted a little bit my, my views on like, what we do with this book in 2018. Well, it was almost a Veruca Salt moment from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. The way she was talking about it, it was like she was standing with her parents and I think she just kept repeating like, I want it, I want it, I want it. And she started crying when her dad very logically explained you can't just take another human's baby. But my thought was this is just the picture of a spoiled child, which is interesting because at no other point in the book is Laura 
spoiled. These people live right. on very little. Um, right. It's really like necessities only. It's a bootstraps kind of life. And for her to kind of have a temper tantrum about this in the way that we see kids in other books have temper tantrums over like getting new toys and new technology, it was very jarring. I will say that there was one very short line in the book that mm-hmm. delivered a little bit in terms of that cultural understanding. And I highlighted it because it was such a rarity in the book and I wanted to (laughs) make sure that I mentioned it. It's at the very end. I think it might be shortly after the situation where she is like clamoring for this baby in an extremely creepy way. The line is, Laura looked and looked at the Indian children and they looked at her. She had a naughty wish to be a little Indian girl. So the first part of that, I think while it's not explicitly saying that she is realizing that they're more alike than they are different or maybe there's not as much novelty to this group of people as she thinks, like I sensed in that line at least that she was realizing like we can look at each other eye to eye as fellow humans and I understand that you're just a child like me. And then this sort of sense of like envy of wanting to be among these children who I think from Laura's perspective are free and they're riding horses without saddles. And I'm sure for a kid like Laura, who is very spirited and independent, there's something exciting about that. So I feel like she was coming close to being clear about there being an understanding there, but she didn't quite get there. Yeah. And I think that the way that I saw the conversation around Indians in this book going or like the the storyline was that Ma was really afraid of them. Their neighbors had horrible things to say about them, scary stories about them. They had some scary incidents or some confrontational moments with them throughout the book. And so it was all like building up to that moment where they were within touching distance of this group of not just Indian men, but the mothers and the children. And I think that that made that moment, it just built up that moment to be kind of more than it would have been if it was just, oh, here is a group, a tribe that's passing by. And I think that another redeeming moment that I wanted to bring up too was near the end. I think it was after this had happened and it relates to Pa. We'll get to Pa and like the heroic man that he is a little bit later in this. But one of his redeeming qualities that I think gets undersung in this book, because we're talking about how he's building houses and doors without um, nails and all of those crazy pioneer man things. Like in hindsight, Um, I'm sorry, as an adult, like (laughs) so sexy. (laughs) It's true. I think about my fiance and I'm like, there's no way. There's no way you could build that house. There's no way you could build that door. It doesn't make me love you any less, but there's just, there's no way. Yeah. I mean, we need to get back to all of that later, but I will let you, (laughs) I will let you, I digress and I'm sorry, but I just, I had to give Pa the shout out that he so deserves before we potentially yeah. rip him apart a little bit in a while. He gets a like he gets a little bit of a gold star in this moment because Mr. Scott, who has his own things going on in this book that we probably won't get into because he doesn't matter that much. But he repeatedly says in this book, the only good Indian is a dead Indian, which is horrifying and just completely unacceptable and upsetting and is a point of the book when it came up where I was like, okay, and this is another reason, like another strike against the book. But Pa says he didn't know about that. He figured that Indians would be as peaceable as anybody else if they were let alone. On the other hand, they had been moved west so many times that naturally they hated white folks. When I read that part, I was like, finally, something, something that acknowledges the inhumanity of what was happening in this time period and the actions that the American government and that white white pioneers were doing to these groups of people who had lived there. It goes on to talk about how Pa says the Indian ought to have a sense enough to know when he was licked and that, like, they're going to have to move forward. Like, Pa was not, none of the characters were redeeming uh, or had had enough redemptive qualities, except for, like, one random doctor who was, like, the doctor for the Indians. But all of that is to say, like, there were some moments where it was like, at least this is referenced. At least it's referenced. And that is not enough. But it is the only moment where that comes up. And I think of all of the characters to take that viewpoint, it was really important for it to be Pa because Laura, who is our protagonist, 
has such a close bond with Pa. And so I think she's coming at all of this with a pretty innocent eye. Obviously, (laughs) the things that she has to say about being obsessed with seeing Indians and having a papoose of her own, which is like, again, so creepy. Those things are all problematic. But she also makes some comments where it's very clear that she doesn't really understand why it's okay for them to come in and take the land that the Native Americans have been living on. So she is coming at it with fresh eyes as a child would. And so I think the fact that Pa is the one who is maybe not fully on board with the way that we would hope for him to treat other groups of people, he's at least a little bit more ambiguous in his opinions than Ma is, who is so, so anti-Native American. It's easy to forget that we're talking about real people. Here I am being like, it's important that like this character, we're led to believe that this is how Charles Ingalls really was and really spoke to Laura. And I hope for Laura that that's true because he offered a really important viewpoint, especially in light of the way her mom, I'm sure as a product of her upbringing, Mm -hmm. was talking about all of this. Yeah, I spent a lot of time in the book thinking about Ma. I mean, as a a fellow Brookfield Wisconsinite, I was like, come on, Ma, I just need you to get on board with my mindset and my mentality. And she had such glowing moments of being this strong woman who could fend for herself when Pa was gone. But she did. She had Ma had incredibly stereotypical views of Native Americans for the time. And she really expressed them in no uncertain terms to her daughters, to her husband. And it seemed like it was based on fear and fear that just was perpetuated through the stereotypes and the stories that were told about the people who lived on this land before them. I hate to do this, but I think we need to circle back to a very gross statement that you mentioned had been made Mm -hmm. several times throughout the book. And the line was, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. And I feel so uncomfortable even saying it. I do want to relate a story that I read while I was researching for this episode, which is that in 1998, there was an eight-year-old little girl living in the Midwest somewhere. I'm not sure exactly where, but her mother was a member of a tribe and was very into preserving Native American culture. And so this little girl was raised with like an awareness of where she came from, which is amazing. And she was assigned this book for school mm-hmm. and was extremely, extremely upset for obvious reasons about that line in particular. And her mom told the school that she was upset about the book being assigned. And it turned into kind of a bigger issue for years and years. I believe since the 50s, there's been a Laura Ingalls Wilder Award given by the American Library Association to honor children's literature. And as a result of this case, over a period of years, it went up to the ALA and the ALA had to address it and sort of make it clear that their (coughs) use of Laura Ingalls Wilder's name for this award was not a reflection of how they feel about to what degree inclusiveness should be represented in children's books. And I think that's a really important thing that happened. And I'm hopeful, I don't know if you have any perspective on this, but I wonder to what extent that situation, which in the kidlit and education world Mm -hmm. was a big deal because the ALA is a big deal. Like I wonder how much that trickled down as far as like how schools are using this book. I don't think I was assigned this book for school. No, I wasn't either. But I will say, as a former teacher of eight-year-olds, I spent a lot of time after I read this book deciding what I thought about this book being assigned in school. And again, this book would most likely be assigned as guided reading, where you read like a chapter a day with a small group of kids. I did a little scholastic book wizard search. It's at the reading level Q, which is beginning of fourth grade. So you're thinking about for context for non-teachers out there, it's eight, nine, 10 year olds who would be reading this book for the first time if it was assigned in school at an appropriate reading level. And I, I can't it's, I have a complicated thought about this book being in schools um, or a complicated set of beliefs about this book being taught in schools. I obviously feel a lot of nostalgia towards this book. And I think that Laura Ingalls Wilder is a woman who, through her, her experiences in life and also her work as an author, should be celebrated in some ways. There's that 
camp of people who I think a lot of where I come from, a lot of a lot of people fall into the camp of like, this is just a classic and it will always be a classic. And then there are other people who will read a line like that and say, do away with this book. It's shit. It's unacceptable for our kids. Don't you dare put words like that in front of my child. It's upsetting and unacceptable. And I think my view is very specific and falls somewhere in between where this book should absolutely not be taught to children or given to children even, whether it's a school content, um, in a school context rather, or at home. If a parent gives this to a child, like I will probably give to my children one day, it has to be given with historical context. No child should pick up this book and read a line like that and either understand how upsetting it was and be upset by it in that moment or like I did when I was a kid, I'm sure, because I do not remember reading that line at all, reading it and taking it at face value. Neither of those options are acceptable for kids. What is acceptable and what I think would help kids use this book in a meaningful way is if they were taught the history of this period of time, this period of manifest destiny and moving west and westward expansion or whatever you choose to call it, because that's another term in our in our history that's quite controversial. If they are taught about that period, the motivations of white settlers moving west and the consequences of those actions on Native American tribes living on the land and the total disregard for their rights and their property in this time. I think if kids have that understanding, which I believe a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old is able to understand if explained to them in a simple level, I think that this book could provide really a thoughtful conversation around perspective. And this is a white five-year-old, six-year-old girl's perspective of what it was like to go West. And if a kid could read this book from that perspective and read it with a little bit of a critical lens and say, hey, Laura said something really inappropriate about Native Americans that I know is wrong because I understand how unfairly we treated these people in the past, then I think that we would develop children who are able to grapple with hard things. In our society today, as we continue to get more and more divided, I think what better opportunity than great literature to teach kids to think in that way, but it has to be done well. And if someone put this book in front of a kid and didn't have the teaching chops or just the ability to explain the context, then this book really should not be in front of a kid. And that is why I invited Drew on the podcast. (laughs) That was so well put. And I, you know, it would be silly for me to say that I agree or disagree with you because you are so able to express from your professional perspective, what all of this means. And I can't help but agree with you. And I think you make so many <laughs> good points. I also pulled a quote from a Washington Post piece that ran earlier this year, actually in 2018, that I think is pretty similar to what you had to say. But I want to share it just because I think it reflects yeah. a lot of what I was feeling about the book and especially the way that we teach it and share it with kids. While the answer to racism is not to impose purity retroactively or to disappear titles from shelves, no eight-year-old Dakota child should have to listen to an uncritical reading of Little House on the Prairie. But no white American should be able to avoid the history it has to tell. If the books are to be read and taught today, and it's hard to escape them given their popularity, then teachers, librarians, and parents are going to have to proceed armed with facts and sensitivity. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, praise the person who said that, because that, in a more concise way than I said, is exactly how I feel about this book. And I'm in the same boat that you're in. I don't remember a lot of these nuances. And again, I want to acknowledge that 
I was a white little girl growing up in a town that was largely white. And so I then, and now looking back, have the privilege of of reading a book like this without having those kinds of stakes associated with it. And so I read it for the excitement and sort of the novelty of these people that lived a life that was so different from my own. And that's why these conversations are so interesting is to be able to go back and experience it from a different perspective, kind of being able to acknowledge your own privilege, being able to acknowledge the diversity that you haven't had to experience and realizing the way those things play into literature in a way that affects children always, as long as these books are available. Yeah. And I think it's so hard. And I acknowledge too, like I am a white person who also comes from a very white, very privileged background in the Midwest. And I think that it has been my great struggle in the work that I do. I believe so strongly in exposing the children that I develop curriculum for who are largely minorities um, to expose them to a variety of cultural, both culturally relevant, like they just have to know some things. Like I, you really cannot be a child in this country and leave elementary school without an understanding of who Laura Ingalls Wilder is because she will be referenced in life after you. But it's so important to teach kids to think about this book critically and think about it with facts and think about it as a white person story and hopefully paired with some other texts and other resources from the same time period that are told from a different perspective. One of the series that was referenced in a lot of the prep work that I was doing um, is a series by Louise Erdrich called the Birch Bark series, I believe. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and I love Louise Erdrich. I've read a lot of her adult books. And I was interested to hear that she wrote this series sort of in response to books like Little House on the Prairie. And so a lot of the pieces that I read in preparation for this interview suggested that like one solution to this problem is to pair the two series together. And, And I don't know enough about the Birch Bark series to say whether or not that's, you know, the same age group or anything like that. But I think that's a great point. And your point is also well taken that it's all about rounding out the experience and rounding out the information. Yeah, absolutely. Because there is such great history to nerd out for just a second. Please. The fact that they're talking about Indian territory, like they moved to Kansas at this or Oklahoma, like they're right on the border, I think based on the geography that they describe. But they talk about this really fascinating moment in history, fascinating in like kind of a horrible way. The end of the book where Pa is so mad because he has to move off this land um, because it's Indian territory is happening at the same time that the Trail of Tears is happening where the Cherokees are being moved from their homelands, which is more like the southeast region of our country to this time and no one is happy just no one is happy with the United States government for the choices that are being made and I just think that if done right there's such cool historical references that could be done if it was in a collection of of texts that kids were reading about this time period and doing some project-based learning around it you can nerd out all day around here (laughs) I love it I want to call the fact that this book is part of a fairly large series because Mm -hmm. something that's interesting for me is that reading Little House on the Prairie as a standalone and then researching the series and the like overarching story of Laura Ingalls Wilder's life are two very different experiences. And I think doing research and learning more about her life and being reminded of all of the other stories that we learn about over the course of the nine books in the series, mm-hmm. you realize that there are so many other things going on and and so many speculations that you can make about different characters and like so much other problematic shit that's happening <laughs> at different points in her life. So I think that returning to this book in particular, which for the record, was the third book in the series, which is interesting because it's the one that I think most people think about. It's the third book. It was written in 1935. Reading this book, as problematic as so much of it was, there's something very special about it. The memories of, you know, again, like watching the show and, and I think a lot of 
the episodes of the show that I remember, the content was taken from the book, like their first Christmas, you know, and mm, being afraid mm-hmm. that Santa wasn't going to come and watching yes. Pa build the house and like all of these very sweet moments between the parents. I remember a lot of that from the show. And so reading it in this book was really interesting. But again, like being reminded of the bigger picture, like I hate to even say this, but there was some speculation that Pa was an alcoholic based on the other books. What? I know. It's very upsetting. (laughs) I've been dealing with it all day personally. But um, (laughs) like realizing that this one book, which I think so many more people have experienced maybe than the series as a whole, it's just a very different experience. Like remembering that these were real people who lived a much bigger life than what we read in this book. It sort of makes it harder, I think, to read. And again, like having access to the amount of information that we have now And maybe it's just because my role in this situation is to do a deep dive into this person's life and almost know too much. Like, I just think it's interesting that this book in particular has really stood alone within this larger series. And so it's kind of hard to figure out whether we should be evaluating it as a standalone or as part of this much longer narrative. I don't know the answer to that. I feel like I would have to read all of the rest of the books, which I'm not sure I'm willing to do. Did you read all of them? When I was a kid. I think yeah. I did. Oh, I for must sure. Have. I had the box set. It was all of the spines were like the different, they were all pastel and it was like a really pretty box with like yes. um, gingham. Yep. I had like, the exact same set and it was lovely. Yeah. I think another just like last historical fun fact and then I really want to talk about like paw. I just want to talk about paw. That's all. Um, <laughs> one thing that I found because I did a little research as well into this book is that, yes, it says it was written by Laura Ingalls Wilder, but actually her daughter, Rose, Mm -hmm. was pretty heavy handed in the editing of this book too. And Rose's background is this like fiercely libertarian woman. And however you choose to interpret that today, because again, this is the 1930s. So who knows what the political parties looked like back then. But or at least I don't, I can't say definitively in this recording of this podcast. But it was very interesting because it added this extra layer of like her idolation of Pa and how he was so a man of the people and a man that like did everything himself and didn't want to borrow even nails to build a door, which again, like I cannot get over the man built a door without nails. (laughs) It was beyond comprehension for me. I literally wrote a note in the book that was like, this is just construction porn. It is construction porn explaining all of the details of this. But it was interesting to know that Laura was the one who experienced and lived this. And then her daughter, who had at least a certain amount of an agenda, helped make these books into what they are today. And I think that's important to know as we think about where this book should exist in our educational and personal libraries. It was just like something I never knew until I research on it. Yeah, it seems like Rose was a little bit of a shady lady too. Like <laughs> she, Laura was 62 yeah. when she even started writing these books. She was like a columnist for a farm magazine for her whole life and was really just trying to get by. And then my understanding from my research is that Rose kind of fell on some hard times financially and mm. at that point was really encouraging her mom to share her stories. And granted, these are great stories. And I great think stories. Yes. Re- regardless of how we feel about a lot of the language that's used we're all grateful that it happened and that Rose encouraged her mom to do this and helped her to do it. But it is worth noting that, as Drew said, there's some sort of questionable circumstances in which all of this happened and probably some political agendas. And to your point, I think there's some question about clearly Laura, I'm sure, like told Rose how great her dad was and how he was her hero. And aren't all of our dads our heroes? I mean, let's be honest, as daughters, like we grow up just idolizing our dads and there's this question about like, are they assigning so much blame to the government in a lot of these situations for pushing them out of their home in order to spare Pa from looking like he messed up and kind of trying to preserve his heroism. This is a man who followed the rules and he just went where he was told he could go. And then when he got there, he helped everyone and he looked after his family and then he was pushed out. And I think all of that is true. It's just a matter of like what kind of lens you look at it through. And Sure. Obviously, these women were like trying to protect their family legacy. 
I think a lot of the speculation that I'm reading about, which again, like it devastates me to say that people thought that Pa was an alcoholic and a lot of people feel like he was kind of a loser that just couldn't get his act together and like (laughs) kept going to different areas that he wasn't supposed to be and then had to pick up his family and move again. That's one way to look at it. And I guess that's the way that you look at it if you're his daughter and his granddaughter that want to preserve his legacy. Yeah. Outside of the lens of all of the historical controversy that we talked about, I kind of love that there's all these other under layers of controversy when it comes to this book. Like the fact that we're even talking about if Pa has had this like darker past or this darker personality. I'm like, what is this? I never would have thought about that when I was eight years old. And I was like, yes, Pa reminds me in some ways of my dad, who was a girl's dad and had two daughters and just could do no wrong in my eyes. So then I'm reading about Pa and I'm like, I'm sure my dad could build a house if he really wanted to. And if he, you know, like, I think he could. And I think proof in point, when I was little, probably reading these books, my dad did buy some like axe, like log cutting machine. And it was like for our cabin in Northern Wisconsin, because there's just like too many trees or something. And it was just like such a moment where I was like, oh my God, my dad is Pa, he's Pa, he's splitting logs. Like, this is <laughs> this is what I wanted when I was eight years old and reading these books. Well, and I think, too, like, part of it is if you're somebody like you or I who watched the show, like, our image of him is further informed by the man who played him who happens to be, like, extremely handsome, um, <laughs> Michael Landon. Shout out to him and his family wherever they are. Yeah. Michael Landon was such an attractive man. So, you know, again, like when these books are adapted, whether into movies or television shows, like we can't help but then further fall in love with the characters, especially when they look and act the way that he did. Like he was cast so perfectly and he was such a hero in the show. In the book, one of my favorite lines was something that Laura was thinking about as she was like watching Pi. I think it was one of the first nights after they arrived on their new tract of land. And she said... Thickly in front of the open wagon top hung the large glittering stars. Pa could reach them, Laura thought. And that is just so sweet and like such a beautiful illustration of the way like a little girl looks at her dad, I think. Yeah. That was one of my favorite lines. But I do think generally and more significantly too, you know, taking out a lot of the political stuff, he empowered his daughters in a way that I have to imagine not all men did at this time in history in the 1800s. He really wanted them to face their fears and he taught them how to be self-reliant. And there were, I mean, there were rules in their house the way there had to be, like children should be seen and not heard and that whole bit, which I think was very much of the time. But Pa really like, I think Pa wanted them to be strong and he pushed them in a way that I think he probably would have pushed sons. Yeah, I will agree with that. I think that Ma existed in this book to be like the moral compass of the family or at least the more traditional values focus where she really was the one who encouraged the girls to be quiet or that they should be seen and not heard, as you said. Or there's this amazing moment in the book when Pa has taken Laura and Mary, right? Mary. Mary's the older sister. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Laura and Mary go, they go to the deserted Indian village and they find all those beads. And that was a moment where I think Pa had pushed them out of their comfort zone and had taken them to teach them something, both about the land that they were living on and how to spot the different tracks of the different animals and also the remnants of this community that had been left behind. And they found all these beads that were left behind and they brought them back to the house and they were so excited and Pa had saved them for them. And then Mary and Laura show them to their mom and she's like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if you gave them to baby Carrie? And I was like, no, it would not be nice. It would be not not nice at all for Laura to do that. But they do. They're they're guilted into this moment of giving the beads to the baby, which is stupid on so many levels. 
And well, and you I, have a sister, so I feel like, and yeah. I wrote this down too. And that whole situation after that, where like Mary gave the beads to <laughs> Carrie, and then Laura was like, "Oh, why do you always have to do the right thing? And if you do that, and I don't, then everybody's gonna hate me and think I'm the worst, and so I should do it." Like that was such like only somebody with a sister could have written that. Oh, we have all so been true. there. It's so true. This like sharing is caring bullshit that we were raised believing and Ma was teaching her girls was so real. The line specifically is they're like sitting in silence, both stringing beads on for the stupid necklace for Carrie, who's not going to enjoy it at all. (laughs) And she goes... They didn't say anything. Perhaps Mary felt sweet and good inside, but Laura didn't. When she looked at Mary, she wanted to slap her, so she dared not look at Mary again. I literally laughed out loud. I was like, that is such the sister relationship right there, where it's like, what the fuck are you doing? I didn't want to share. And I loved that moment because it was was so real for little girls and sisters. It was so real from a traditional mother who was raising her daughters to be generous and kind to a fault, to a fault. Um, And then Pa also, who was pushing the same girls to be more adventurous and brave and discover these cool new things. I think it said a lot. That one little scene said a lot about that family. Yeah, and PSA, I think beads are like a choking hazard for babies. <laughs> I know, I know. There's a lot of reasons why that was quite the scene. What did you think generally about the way that Pa treated Ma and kind of like the gender dynamic in their family? Because I have some mixed feelings about it, and I'd love to get your take on it. Yeah, I think that Pa loved Ma. <laughs> It's like a kindergarten beginning reading sentence. Pa loved Ma, and it was very clear in the way that he spoke to her and interacted with her. And I think that the same goes. Ma loved Pa, and like they both had this, they had a, a strength to them that they really showed at critical moments, either together or separately in the book when calamity ensued on the prairie. But I do think there was a little bit of a Stepford wife behaviorism to Ma, where she was like, oh, of course we're going to move to the West. And of course you're going to go to town and leave me with three children and a gun. And of course we're going to just pick up and move one day and let's put the like tarp back onto the wagon and off we go again. That really bothered me because I was like, Ma, you just built this whole goddamn house and you dug a well where someone could have died and you did all of these things and you have a goddamn cow. You have a cow. Don't give up the cow. It's the only way that you're going to get milk for your kids. And off we go to the next place without questioning any of his actions. I just got very heated. But yeah, that's my, I don't know. It's hard. It's really hard to decide. I see that. And and obviously we see her and the daughters doing very traditionally female work around the house, mm-hmm. which I do think is balanced in some ways by the fact that, again, Pa challenges the girls to go out and do things that we as readers have not traditionally been taught to view as feminine. I will say that I think Ma had a few badass moments <laughs> that yeah. that kind of made me feel better about the whole thing. Like she saved Pa and the neighbor when they could have died in the well. Like she yeah. single-handedly pulled them up. She has a log fall on her foot when she's helping Pa build the house, which he asks her to do. And then she like hobbles around on a broken foot for months in order to right. like keep things going. And I do think that as much as maybe Pa was a little bit condescending to her in a lot of cases, he did trust her with a lot of things at several points throughout the book when he had to go and and do whatever Pa does when he goes into town and then there's like disaster that ensues. He always is like, well, I, I know that you could have handled it. Like I left you with the gun because I know that you could have taken care of this problem. I came back right. because I wanted to help. I was sort of like heartened by all of that, as frustrating as it was to just know that the dynamic at this time in history would have been one that was very imbalanced. Yeah, I think that's fair. I would love to know, especially as we start to wind down this conversation, which I personally think we could keep having for another two hours. Yes. What do you think about Laura as a heroine? 
I mean, you have to keep in mind that she's a like five-year-old girl, five mm-hmm. or six, because it says in the book, context clues, that Mary was almost eight and she like didn't think that playing outside anymore was ladylike, which is a whole other thing that gets back to the gender roles that were in this book. I think that it's really important as you read this book to remember that it's told through the eyes of a little girl, whether it's in the way that she tells the story or describes groups of people like the Indians that she encounters. I think it's an interesting perspective because there are not that many books out there that I can say that are well done, that are written from a young person's perspective. And so I like that. I think it's really cool for especially young girl readers and at any point in history I think especially now when kids are so reliant on and I hate to sound like a fuddy-duddy but like kids now are so reliant on their like technology and all of those things and I think it's really great that there exists somebody like Laura who lives on our literature who is self-reliant in so many ways and is like Mm -hmm. a sponge to all the things that are happening around her that will teach her how to provide for herself and take care of herself and whether she does that effectively whether we always agree with the way she sees things or or the way that her parents are instructing her to see things I think that if we're thinking big picture about what she represents and we take out all the political crap which is obviously something that we need to take into account but if we take that out and just look at her as a character I'm really glad that she is going to endure as a literary character because I think she paved the way for a lot of great female protagonists that we read about in more modern kid lit. Absolutely. I think that it's both Laura as the heroine and Laura as the author that really is inspiring. It's the same person just in different time periods of their lives. But I think that when we think about literature, when we think about movies, when we think about television, there's all of this conversation around the lack of female voice in it. And this was one of the first experiences that I had as a child of someone like me, a little girl, experiencing life and a big life and an adventurous life for the first time. And I think there is something really beautiful about that because as long as we handle all of the diversity and historical issues within this book correctly, it can still live on as this really wonderful story of a little girl who's experiencing something through young, fresh eyes that is really special. And one more thing that I want to give credit to before we move on to our final questions here is the quality of the writing in this book which is it's hard to touch on sometimes you know in the midst of all of these really interesting conversations we have in these interviews but especially for this grade level the writing is beautiful the description is is. stunning and I you know there are just so many passages that I circled just because I wanted to remember how luscious they were in their description and Regardless of what, you know, kind of funky things were going on behind Mm -hmm. the scenes with Laura, whether it was Laura who wrote them or her daughter who wrote them or I don't know who edited them, it doesn't matter. The final product is a really beautiful book. And I, yes, again, it's nice to know that books that are written well are going to exist on the shelves like this for kids to pick up as long as, like you said, they have people who can help them sort of like decode the more challenging bits that are important for them to understand. I wholeheartedly agree. I just couldn't, there were moments when she described the sun, when she described the smell of the prairie. There is a beautiful, beautiful chapter in this book that is about the wolves and how Pa experienced the wolves, the family experienced the wolves, that was so unbelievably beautifully written that I paused myself and was like, wow, this is a spectacularly well-written story that describes things in really beautiful ways that I think would be really important for kids to read. So we have come to the all-important question, and I want to know if this experience has ruined Little House on the Prairie for you (laughs) or made you love it even more. And I know it's tempting to put it somewhere in the middle. But 
if there's one direction that you're leaning in more than others, let's talk about that direction. I like I so desperately want to put it somewhere in the middle. I have to say it ruined it a little bit for me. I want to say it love I loved it more. I do. I have so much love in my heart for my memories of this book, but it kind of ruined it for me to read it again, given what I do now and given the things that are in it. And I wish that wasn't so because I so wish that this book could continue for me to be what it was. But I don't think that I can read this book or consider this book anymore without recalling the things that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. So yeah, if I had to pick one or the other, that's where I fall. What about you? I think it made me love it more. And I think it's because I was able to take the time to do some research about the greater context of it. Mm -hmm. I feel like as upsetting as so much of this stuff was to be able to understand the history that it was portraying and to learn about how Laura was a product of her time and to understand like what was really at stake and the things that I missed as a kid as hard as some of it was to read I think maybe I appreciated it more whether I think love is sometimes a hard word because like you said it was very difficult to revisit and to like be faced with some of these things but I definitely have a greater appreciation for the book and for like this world in which she was living which you know, when I was a kid, I just thought the world was about like covered wagons and cornhusk <laughs> yeah. dolls and all these things. And knowing and now, calico. we haven't talked about calico, but I was obsessed. Yeah, with I didn't cal- know what it was, but I like <laughs> wanted it all. Like I wanted a full <laughs> calico wardrobe. Right. But I think knowing that the world was like so much bigger than that, and especially now, like we live in such complicated times, and knowing that books that are written about kids who live in 2018 will be forced to contend with similar issues of like whose side are you on and who can you accept in your life and how are you understanding people that are different from you I am forced to have some empathy for these kids who are just kind of being carted around the country and believing what they're told (laughs) by their parents and and again the writing was so beautiful I think I had a new appreciation for the parents and all of the work that they had to do to set up this life yeah Um, So I think I just read it at a different depth than I did when I was a kid, which is good because I guess it means that I've like grown as a human, which would be (laughs) weird if I hadn't. (laughs) Yeah, true. Very true. Moving away from this conversation about Little House on the Prairie, which again, I think we could continue for a few more hours and maybe you and I will do that personally over a glass of wine. Yes, please. Is there a book that you would recommend to our listeners just as like a great read that you've experienced recently? We always love to keep people in the loop about things that they should be adding to their to-be-read list. Totally. And I did a lot of thinking about what this book would be because I just have so many books that I would share. But my recommendation, especially for people who are still deep down in their hearts, history nerds, eight-year-olds who love history like I was, but who want to push themselves to learn about a group of people who you may have never heard of before and who are not plastered all over our history books, like the white pioneers are in this story, is the book Pachinko by Min Jin Lee. And it's the story of a... Korean woman right at the brink of World War II. It's really about kind of her family. It's a really epic story of many generations, but it really centers around this woman who gets pregnant out of wedlock and she goes on this journey. She really changes the course of her life and her family in a similar way that the Ingalls do when they pack up and move to the West and moves herself to Japan. And I, as a a lover of history and as a granddaughter of a World War II veteran, felt like I knew a lot about World War II and this time period. And I just had no idea about these Koreans who had moved to Japan while they were under occupancy of Japan for a better life and what it was like to live there and experience prejudice and experience hardship and experience war in this land that 
was not their homeland. It's fascinating. It's beautifully written. And it, it's a really a special book for people who want to learn about a group of people who is not represented well in history. And you are a history buff. So if you learned a lot from it, I think a lot of us, including me, have a lot to learn from it. I will include a link to Pachinko as well as a link to Little House on the Prairie in the show notes so that anybody who wants to check them out and do a read or do a reread can do that easily. Drew, thank you so much for being on the show today. I had so much fun talking through some of these challenging issues with you. And I'm, I'm so glad that we got to dive into all of this together. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was so fun. I'll talk to you soon. Bye, Drew. Okay, bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.